This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. On September 13th, 1992, several media outlets, including the New York Times, reported a story about a hiker who was found dead in a bus in Alaska. The Times headlined the article, Dying in the Wild, a Hiker Recorded the Terror. A week later, on September 20th, they released a second article about the same hiker that was titled Hiker Identified by Self-Portrait. This article revealed to the world that the hiker's name was Chris McCandless. He was 24 and from Annandale, Virginia, a wealthy suburb of Washington, D.C., a graduate from the prestigious Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. An editor from a travel magazine outside read the article and asked John Krakauer to investigate the details on assignment for um, a longer piece. Krakauer's article, titled Death of an Innocent, was published uh, in their January 1993 issue just a few months later. However, the story moved Krakauer on a personal level, and in Krakauer's words, I was haunted by the particulars of the boy's starvation and by vague, unsettling parallels between events in his life and those in my own. Unwilling to let McCandless go, I spent more than a year retracing the convoluted path that led to his death in the Alaska Taiga, chasing down details of his peregrinations with an interest that bordered on obsession. So the result of Krakauer's obsession was the book titled Into the Wild, which was first published in 1996. Today, it's an international bestseller, having 173 editions and formats in 30 languages, and it's used as an outside reading book in secondary schools across the world, including here in our state, Tennessee. In 2019, it was listed by Slate as one of the 50 best nonfiction works of the past 25 years. Christy, we uh, plan on spending three weeks delving into this book, uh, looking at it primarily from a rhetorical perspective. But before we do that, 
I think we have to note just how immense a response this book has provoked. Um, John Krakauer is not an outlier in being haunted by this young man. You know, what I want to highlight is that uh, it's not the narrative intensity of the drama that our people are drawn to. You know, frankly, in terms of narrative, it's not all that dramatic. I mean, this is not uh, a story about violence and there's no love interest. And there isn't uh, many brave accounts of a young man fighting harsh elements of nature like bears or wolves. He dies from seeds. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating how a story, a relatively simple story, has resonated with literally millions from around the globe. Well, and, and that's exactly what's happened. I mean, it's resonated around the globe, and the story has grown over time. I mean, the literary term for this is called a story world. The Chris McCandless story created a transmedia story world that is highly charged. Everyone who is familiar with the story has a highly charged opinion. He's a villain. He's a hero. No one is neutral on the subject of Chris McCandless. So uh, what is a story world? Well, it's kind of a modern concept, I guess. It's this phenomenon of storytelling that can be, you know, exponentially enabled to grow by modern media. Uh, you know, we think of it as a story going viral, so to speak, but it does more than just go viral. It takes on a life. It grows and it crosses genres. Um, it's not just reprinted or recounted. Or it's not even really imagined. It changes from the original story. In this case, it started with a news article, but then it became a book. And then we're going to see one of the first readers of that book was Sean Penn. And he made it into a movie, which turned into an enormous project. It took Penn years to, to make that vision into reality. I mean, he recorded in 35 different locations, created two replicas of the magic bus. He interviewed more people. He added details in the movie that weren't originally revealed in Krakauer's book. He brought on Eddie Vader, a Pearl Jam, to create original music. I mean, he interpreted things differently not insignificantly, by the way, the ending, the, the ending scene of the movie where he speculates as perhaps to McCandless's final thoughts. I mean, Penn's movie came out in theaters in 2007, so it wasn't, you know, it was several years later, but it was highly successful, grossing over 56000 I'm sorry, $56 million. But even that is really still just the beginning. The story has grown from there. Uh, in fact, there's people telling different stories. There's a man by the name of Ron Lamoth, and he made an, uh, his own documentary where he completely disagree. Well, not completely, but he does openly disagree with Krakauer's claims and his interpretations of the evidence. The Lamoth version is kind of a more negative interpretation as opposed to Krakauer's fairly positive interpretation of McCandless' life. But the second documentary isn't even the final one. Uh, not even a year after, you know, that movie came out, then Discovery Channel developed a reality show, which ran for two seasons. One season was literally called Out of the Wild, the Alaska Experiment. It was this concept where they dropped participants off in Alaska, and they had to survive there on their own for several weeks. Oh, man, that's the theme of so many shows. So how did that go? 
Well, it won an Emmy, <laughs> and it went on to produce a third season, which they called Out of the Wild Venezuela. See, it's growing. <laughs> what are they going to do, Out of the Wild Walmart, you know? <laughs> I know, it just goes on. I mean, in 2011, McCandless's parents released a book and a DVD called Back to the Wild, where they published Chris's photographers as well as his correspondence. Then, of course, in 2014, Corrine McCandless published her memoir, that's his sister, titled The Wild Truth. And in her book, she discusses, you know, their family dynamic as children, as well as her life since Chris's death. Her story is unique and because she, you know, is open about issues of domestic abuse and how that affected Chris and the McCandless story in general. Things that Krakauer had known about because he'd read their correspondence and he had spoken to the family members. But because he respected the family's wishes at that time, he chose to leave those details out of the original story when it came out. But by the time Kareen published her book, she's an adult. Uh, the McKinless story is over 20 years old. And, you know, things were different. So you would think at that point there would be nothing left to say about Chris McCandless, but that's not true. In 2013, a man by the name of Craig Medred wrote a series of articles challenging the veracity of Krakauer's book. One of his articles, and he titles it this, listen, The Fiction That Is John Krakauer's Into the Wild. <laughs> of course, this just reopened up this conversation. There were several new pieces, some of them not even in English. There's a Belgium TV series that came out. PBS ran a series called Return to the Wild in 2014. <laughs> I mean, good grief. It's a franchise. You know, it feels that way, except there's no unifying element. There's not a single publisher. There's not a company behind the story. The growth is truly organic. And we have to remember, you know, Krakauer published his book pre-internet. But now, <laughs> that's over. I mean, there are websites like the one that I used to research this podcast called chrismccandless.info. On that website, among other things, students are encouraged to submit personal essays, and they have, where they talk about their engagement with the book. There are other websites that have maps of Chris's journey, Google, you know, points of interest. There are blogs where people have chronicled their experience retracing his steps. Krakauer himself has an Instagram page with a link tree that, you know, features photos and blogs and interviews. There's podcasts like the ones we're doing. There's fan art. There's tattoo. Don't And you certainly can't forget the hundreds or more. I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't really know, maybe even thousands of individuals who go, you know, every year and retrace his steps. Some of them don't go to Alaska. They may go to Slab City. Uh, that's a place where he describes in the book. They may kind of trek down the Colorado River. Or they may hike around Lake Mead. But then there are those, the most adventurous, who set out on that pilgrimage uh, to go to where was once the magic bus. It's been moved now. We'll talk about that later. Bus 142, where Chris lived for 114 days and died. And that's beyond the border of the Denali National Park. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that no one really knows how many people have taken the hike to the magic bus. <laughs> I know. 
there have been literally thousands. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Walden Pond and how many people have gone to Walden to visit the place where Henry David Thoreau went out to the woods to live deliberately, except no one gets lost walking around Walden. <laughs> no. And uh, hundreds and literally hundreds get lost regularly, and uh, and many have had to be rescued trying to reach bus 142. And uh, in fact, and, and this was to the chagrin of John Krakauer, as well as Chris McCandless's sister, Corrine, um, in June of 2020, after numerous expensive and difficult rescues, as well as two deaths, the Alaskan National Guard took the extreme measure of secretly airlifting the bus out of the wilderness, and they took it to, and I quote, an unknown location. <laughs> I know, and it does kind of feel like a loss to take the bus away, but beyond people just getting lost and, of course, dying trying to get there, there were those uh, who, when they got there, didn't respect it and trashed it, if you can imagine that. You know, when John Krakauer originally went there to research his book, I mean, it was how McCandless had left it. McCandless's boots were still there. His books were still there. His clothes were there, even his toothbrush. Um, the Washington Post asked Krakauer when they removed the bus what his feelings were about that. And, you know, let me quote him here. He said, I wish the bus could have remained how it was, but I wrote the book that ruined it. You know, of course, the bus was already abandoned. So in a sense, it was ruined when McCandless found it. Um, but I was surprised to read that people have trashed it. I mean, can you imagine Hiking four days to go to a place and then, you know, trashing it? I know, it's ridiculous. But what's even harder to believe is how strange it would have been for Krakauer on that first visit. I mean, it had to have felt eerie. I think so. Uh, And and in some ways, the whole story is eerie. Um, In this episode, we will discuss Krakauer's book, beginning with the author's note through Chapter 5, and focus on both Krakauer and McCandless's journey before the Alaskan wilderness adventure. You know, you referenced and even quoted from Krakauer's author's note. I want to go back there because sometimes I just don't even read those things. Author's notes can be uninteresting, but not in this case. Krakauer's style is personal and it's honest. And he inserts himself into the book as a character. He's part of the narrative. This isn't an accident or his carelessness as a writer. The book is obviously about Chris McCandless, but it's more than that. It's about the author engaging McCandless and whatever mysterious hold, you know, whatever had McCandless. Krakauer literally retraces McCandless's steps. He takes us through the research as he uncovers it. And I think that's an important feature. This book is about Krakauer's journey, retracing McCandless. It can't be about McCandless's journey because we don't really know that. Uh, We can accompany Krakauer and watch him piece together the puzzle through journals and photos and and correspondence and and talking to the people that McCandless engaged. By interacting with these different mediums, we can engage multiple perspectives. There are parts where Krakauer will literally cut and paste sections of McCandless's journal into his books. He'll cut and paste sections of postcards and letters from different people. But there are other times when he will describe for us the different locations and what they look like. And he'll interview important people in McCandless's journey and allow them to tell their own story. But we, if we're going to be careful readers, have to understand that this just 
as any story, fiction or on nonfiction, this story has a perspective, and it's Krakauer's perspective. He's making an argument, an argument that many over the years have not agreed with. In fact, sometimes they've vehemently disagreed with them. Of course, no one uh, can really speak for Chris McCandless, and not even his sister attempts to do that. But there are moments um, that we watch Krakauer draw inferences from journal entries or postcards that may have meant something other than how he understands him. And and I like that Krakauer doesn't shy away from that. I mean, he invites that engagement. Uh, but it's important to note that the McCandless family have endorsed Krakauer's book, and they are friends with Krakauer to this day, and seem to really express a lot of gratitude for the um, incredible effort that Krakauer made to figure out what happened to their son and their brother. And uh, you know, we have to remember um, all this happened pre-internet, pre-iPhone, and pre-tracking. And his family would uh, not have known what happened to their son without Krakauer, and they certainly wouldn't have known how he died. Uh, that took Krakauer years to figure out, and at significant personal expense. I mean, no one can accuse John Krakauer of not taking his journalism seriously. Um, there's nothing intentionally fictionalized, uh, embellished, or you know, deleted for the purpose of creating a false narrative. And Krakauer, over many books um, and decades as a writer, fact-checked himself um, just endlessly. And it, it c- continues to enjoy a high level of respect as a researcher and as an authentic storyteller. And, you know, in an interview he uh, gave about his book on, on Pat Tillman, which is also very interesting. And, you know, by the way, Krakauer claims to not enjoy writing all that much, but his passion is the research. Well, he records interviews. He fact-checks his own sources. He interviews multiple people about the same event from multiple perspectives. And um, as you will see in any of his books, uh, you know, not to say that it's, it's impeccable. Uh, that's an impossible standard when you're talking about human interactions and human recollections. But according to um, his own admission, he usually only puts about 10% of what he learns about any given subject into a book, which um, he says sometimes hurts people's feelings. Um, but that's the effort that it takes to make sure he feels confident uh, in the narrative. And he'll spend days with all kinds of people, interviewing them, exploring with them, and sometimes not even quoting them. And it was just part of the broader exploration of ideas uh, and the context. And uh, he also will make revisions between editions and amending errors or, or new discoveries uh, after the first edition has come out. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's just a very small detail that most people wouldn't care about. I mean, it's his craftsmanship, so he's going to make it as good as possible. Right. And speaking of exploring, you know, Krakauer loves exploring. I mean, not just in journalism. I mean, he's done it from his youth. Growing up in Oregon, he explores the outside world, mountains and cliffs, the world of nature. But in the process, he also explores the world of men, the world of the mind, the soul, Um, And he does that through the natural world. If you look at his profile on Instagram that I referenced before, you'll just see tons of pictures of rock climbing and skiing and biking and all the things. His uh, Instagram profile will also tell you that for four months um, after End of the Wild was published, he, along with a team of hikers, climbed Mount Everest. And uh, on that trip, four of his five teammates died in a storm. I mean, Krakauer shares the story in his book titled Into Thin Air. 
And for that book, he won an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Yeah, uh, just a cursory scroll through his publicity pictures helps you understand what he means when he tells you in the author's note that he felt a kinship with McCandless for many reasons. Uh, But one of the reasons is that he sees himself a little bit in Chris McCandless, just not so extreme. Um, he makes several important claims in that author's note of what he was looking to understand when he set out to understand McCandless. He says this, In trying to understand McCandless, I inevitably came to reflect on other larger subjects as well. The grip wilderness has on the American imagination, the allure high-risk activities hold for young men of a certain mind, and the complicated, highly charged bond that exists between fathers and sons. So that's the quote. What does he say? He, he tried to find three things. Uh, and these are the ideas that are going to inform our discussions over the next three episodes. Number one, the grip of the wilderness on the American imagination. Number two, he wants to understand the allure of high-risk activities for young men of a certain mind. And three, of course, the complicated, highly charged bond that exists between fathers and sons. <laughs> uh, well, that's a tall order to try to uncover in one year. Well, true. And, and his assertion here really tells us who his intended audience is. This book isn't just about telling a sad story about a single individual to make us cry. Krakauer saw in McCandless something universal, and the people who feel the draw of the wilderness, or if they feel a draw to high-risk activities, or if they have a complicated family relationship, you know, they can understand John, and, and they can understand Chris. This explains the, the book's appeal. I mean, there's lots of people that can see themselves in this, and it's not just about Krakauer. And because Krakauer writes in this intimate, informal style, people who fall into the group feel invited to enter into this exploratory experience with him. You know, I'm not a young male, obviously, uh, but I can feel connected to Chris and Krakauer because I share with them this high level of wonderlust. I've never been to Alaska. I can't scale mountains. But, you know, last week I hiked into the Smokies, which is the closest range near our house. Uh, but And when I finished the book, I wanted to go to Alaska. Krakauer and Chris made me feel that. Uh, secondly, you know, I'm not really drawn to high-risk activities, but I have a baby brother it is. And so I can understand what it's like. I've seen what it's like firsthand uh, when I've watched my brother video himself jumping into an icy cold lake in the middle of winter just because he feels like he should. You know, this is the same kind of thing that we see a little bit in McCandless as he drives a car into a park and just leaves it. Uh, And then, of course, you get to those highly charged family relationships. Now, to me, that expression, highly charged family relationships, is an interesting turn of phrase. What does he mean like that? Well, we all can see ourselves in that in some way. I mean, these are pretty universal themes. Exactly. And Krakauer doesn't write as an informed philosopher who has it all figured out. I mean, this is not a self-help book. Um, He writes as a man looking and really finding empathy for a fellow human, and he invites the reader to do the same. And, you know, let me uh, continue to read from the author's note. I won't claim to be an impartial biographer. McCandless's strange tale struck a personal note that made a dispassionate rendering of the tragedy impossible. Through most of the book, I have tried and largely succeeded, I think, 
to minimize my authorial presence. But let the reader be warned, I interrupt McCandless's story with fragments of a narrative drawn from my own youth. I do so in hope that my experiences will throw some oblique light on the enigma of Chris McCandless. Well, there are 18 chapters in the book, and all of the chapters begin with quotes from other people. The first chapter opens up with words from a postcard McCandless wrote and mailed from Fairbanks, Alaska, before he set off into the Alaskan wilderness to a friend in South Dakota. He tells his friend, Wayne Westerberg, where he is, but then he ends with this phrase that will eventually become the title of the book. He says this, I now walk into the wild. Well, it's melodramatic, but aren't we all uh, at some time? I mean, giving McCandless grace is what has been so controversial about this book. Um, Is what he did brave or is it irresponsible? Krakauer is going to make the case that it's brave, but of course it's arguable. A man by the name of Jim Galleon picked McCandless up on the side of the road as he was walking into the wild. And McCandless was looking for the Stampede Trail, which is this primitive road that had been abandoned for years, an obscure setting. And Gary, tell us about this choice. What is special about trying to find the Stampede Trail? <laughs> Honestly, if you're hiking the Stampede Trail today, it's probably because you've read Krakauer's book. Uh, As far as Alaskan trails go, it's not the most picturesque. Um, It's not on anybody's list of top 10 hikes in Alaska, you know, although it is uh, obviously beautiful. Uh, It starts off the road between Fairbanks, Alaska, to Anchorage near a small town called Healy. And the trail itself doesn't have any of those cool rocks like we think of Alaska having. And there are no fjords or anything like that. And the technical challenge of the trail is crossing rivers, uh, the crux being the river McCandless crosses to get to the bus, the Teklanika River. And as McCandless learned, sometimes that river is easy to cross and sometimes it's impossible to cross depending on the water levels. And, you know, another thing visitors mention uh, in this particular area are the mosquitoes. Apparently, there are a lot of mosquitoes in this area, you know, which makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's famous now, even without the magic bus. But at the time, this was literally in the middle of nowhere. And that's why McCandless went there. He didn't want to go to the famous places with lots of hikers. He wanted to be completely off the grid. And so on April 28, 1992, he set out. He took with him a small rifle and he started walking. You know, that man, Jim Galligan, picked up the hitchhiker and he gave him a ride to the trail. But Galligan immediately observed that the young man didn't look like an experienced hiker, at least not for this kind of setting. His rifle wasn't power enough or anything but small game, and he didn't seem to have much besides the rifle. I mean, he had 10 pounds of rice. He had some cheap hiking boots, a tattered state roadmap, books, a few other things, but not enough, in Galleon's opinion, to live off the land. In fact, and I find it interesting you know, he was filled with such pity that he gave him his own shoes because they were waterproof. And he also gave him his lunch. I can't imagine how pitiful you'd have to look to get someone's lunch. <laughs> True. Well, he tried to talk him out of going. And the only reason he even let it go is because he just assumed he'd turn around in a couple of days. And the meagerness of McCandless's uh, provisions is a big point of the book because it's one of the things that makes people think McCandless was crazy. And 
Krakauer is going to argue very persuasively that he is not crazy. Uh, Krakauer sets out to build a line of reasoning and provide enough evidence to prove that to the reader. And there are, uh, you know, reasonable reasons for the choices McCandless made. And in fact, uh, when many readers read this, they see themselves making similar choices. McCandless takes things for uh, reasons beyond physical survival, like books, and he doesn't take other things with him for specific reasons, like a topographical map, because he has specific goals for what he's doing. The goal is not just to walk and look at the landscape. The goal is not even to hide, necessarily. Krakauer is going to point out that McCandless has prepared. Alaska has always been his goal, and he's been preparing for two years. He believes he's prepared enough physically, mentally, spiritually to confront the Alaskan wilderness. It appears it's not his goal to just live in Alaska forever. In fact, he planned to return to South Dakota by the fall. I think it's important to note here, uh, there's nothing in Krakauer's book, in any journal or photo released to the public, to promote the idea that McCandless had any kind of a death wish. I mean, he did not. Um, a lot of the arguments surrounding Krakauer's story has been if he is just a person with a low IQ or a person with a severe mental illness. You know, I think Krakauer's research has demonstrated pretty convincingly that those are misconceptions as well. And, you know, so we have a mystery as to why he went. Of course, there is never any mystery as to if he's going to make it out. Chapter one is McCandless leaving for the wilderness. Chapter two is about the men and the woman that discover his dead body in September of 1992, just a few months after that encounter on, on the road with Jim Galleon. It's not a small event. A couple smelled the body. They didn't want to go into the bus to look at it, but some other local hunters who were coming up opened the bus and found the body had been decomposing for over two weeks. The police were called. The helicopter came. McCandless's remains, his camera, his SOS note, his diaries were taken away. The cause of death, starvation. But why do this? And that's the story that opens chapter three. You know, Christy, maybe the better question is, uh, why not? I mean, I know there were factors within the McCandless family dynamic that will emerge later that compelled McCandless to cut himself off from his family. And that's a different issue. Uh, but it shouldn't be all that shocking that a young man, you know, a brilliant young man, a high achieving young man would uh, pursue something so radical. And, you know, he certainly isn't the first. McCandless had done nothing up to that point except meet his parents and his community's expectations. He'd done everything everyone else had done, and up to that point, he'd been successful. Uh, he was a, a successful athlete in high school, a star student. He'd gotten into an elite university. He graduated with honors. His father wanted him to go into law school, and he had the money given to him from a family friend to do it. Yeah, but those are all external things. And when McCandless's family came to Atlanta for ha his graduation, he didn't mention it to them, but he had other ideas. And some of his ideas were to pursue something extreme. Well, like I said, in McCandless's case, uh, there are extenuating circumstances that make his situation more extreme than most. Uh, but for most humans, especially male the need to venture out and to confront one's fears and to find one's limits uh, is archetypal. 
this human need has been obscured in some ways kind of in modern society, but there is a real idea that a young man or woman needs to do something to, to demonstrate their coming of age and if you don't, you're at risk of falling into a routine of boredom that will lead to all kind of other issues. And, you know, writers write about this all the time. Uh, you know, we've talked about the, the buildings, Roman, on the podcast multiple times as a genre in literature. Uh, but in McCandless's case, it's not intuitive. Uh, it's intentional. Uh, in other words, it's not like McCandless just felt a restlessness and decided to hit the road. He'd read authors talking about this very idea, and, you know, specifically uh, Jack London, who is very much the embodiment of everything Chris McCandless was wanting in his life at that moment. Yeah. And, you know, Krakauer quotes London a lot because McCandless quoted him. But London, as he lived his life, kind of made, you know, similar choices that I would argue were just, if not more reckless than McCandless's choices. I mean, at one point, Jack London bought a boat, hired a man who didn't know how to sail it, and then tried to sail around the world. I mean, he got lost so many times. They reported over and over again that he was dead, and then they would have to retract <laughs> it, and then he would get lost again. I don't know how he made it. Rumors of his death were greatly exaggerated. <laughs> yes. you know, that's a great point, and that will be Krakauer's point, too. Uh, McCandless is not doing something that many young men do, and you know, there's science behind it. I mean, young men look to do maybe or must do things they perceive as dangerous, uh, and the goal is not to get killed. It's the opposite. The goal is to feel alive and survive, and it's why uh, they're so easy to recruit as soldiers sometimes. It's why they they make good pilots and firefighters. You know, let me quote uh, psychologist Dr. Margaret King. The rush starts in the amygdala, a bundle of neurons at the base of the brain responsible for assessing the unknown in a thrill-seeking situation which almost always poses some kind of risk, whether perceived or real, the amygdala registers that risk, then releases a combination of dopamine, adrenaline, endorphins, and other chemicals in order to protect the body against it. How much of each is released depends on the perceived level of risk. At the peak, every bodily function, chemical brain reaction, and sensory input is hyper-focused on the experience. So, do you think uh, men are bigger thrill seekers than women are? <laughs> I am not saying anything like that, but I will say that research definitely supports that you know men score higher when uh, they take some uh, sensation-seeking tests. Well, interesting. I mean, Krakauer starts Chapter 3 with a, a quote by Leo Tolstoy and then another one by Wallace Stagner that kind of support, I think, what you're trying to say. Let me quote uh, Tolstoy. I wanted movement and not a calm course of existence. I wanted excitement and danger and the chance to sacrifice myself for my love. I felt in myself a super abundance of energy which found no outlet in quiet life. You know, that's basically what you were saying. Mr. T Mr. War and Peace, huh? <laughs> yeah. T uh, Stagner says this, It should not be denied that being footloose has always exhilarated us. It's associated in our minds with escape from history and oppression and law and irksome obligations with absolute freedom, and the road has always led west. You know, obviously, he's talking about the American people there. But as Krakauer follows McCandless West, they go to Carthage, South Dakota. In other words, McCandless went to South Dakota, Dakota. So Krakauer starts his journey investigating McCandless there. Uh, 
Carthage only has 274 people, but one of the people that live there is Wayne Westerberg. He's a hard-living, really, independent grain elevator owner. Well, and he, he befriended Chris. He gave Chris a job. Uh, but more importantly, and I guess this is why it was a good place to start, uh, he was the recipient of McCandless's journal and his photo album that Chris had used to chronicle his life from the time he left Atlanta until the time he went to Alaska. So when Krakauer interviews Westberger, he gets these details that he's allowed uh, to include in his book. I've given jobs to lots of hitchhikers over the years. Most of them weren't much good and really didn't want to work. It was a different story with Alex. He was the hardest worker I've ever seen. Didn't matter what it was, he'd do it. Hard physical labor, mucking rotten grain and dead rats out of the bottom of a hole, jobs where you get so damn dirty you couldn't even tell what you look like at the end of the day, and he never quit in the middle of something. If he started a job, he'd finish it. It was almost a moral thing for him. He is what you'd call extremely ethical. He set pretty high standards for himself. You could tell right away that Alex was intelligent. He had read a lot. He used a lot of big words. I think maybe part of what got him into trouble was that he did too much thinking. Sometimes he tried too hard to make sense of the world, to figure out why people were bad to each other so often. A couple of times I tried to tell him it was a mistake to get too deep into that kind of stuff. But Alex got stuck on things. He always had to know the absolute right answer before he could go on to the next thing. Again, you see Krakauer using Westerberg's words and Westerberg's perspective to kind of put in words what he wants to show in these chapters where he details McCandless's hitchhiking and canoeing adventures in the American West. Look what he says. Chris McCandless is in the process of reinventing himself. He goes by the name Alex. In his journal, he refers to himself as Alexander Supertramp. But here, um, he says to Westerberg that he's introduced himself as Alex McCandless. Uh, he introduced himself, by the way, to Jim Gallion as just Alex. But that's not the main point. Besides reinventing himself, what does he point out? Chris is extremely hardworking. He's more hardworking than anyone Westerberg had encountered before in a similar situation. He's extremely smart, smarter than anyone. He had a curious mind. He reads, he articulates himself. He thinks deeply. Thirdly, listen to this. He has an extreme sense of justice, an extreme sensitivity you know, to higher law, to natural law, moral rules that rule the universe. And then he says he has an extreme ability to persevere. He doesn't quit. When he pursued something, he pursued it to the end. What are these? These are extreme versions, but they're extreme versions of positive things, not negative ones. Well, they are. In the following chapters, we're going to see these things express themselves in different ways well before Alex lands in Alaska. And it makes sense that for a guy built that way to be drawn to Alaska. I mean, Alaska as the 49th state of the Union has been that kind of destination, you know, well before the formal transfer of the territory and the raising the U.S. flag at Sitka on October 18th, 1867. You know, Alaska has always uh, been a symbol, especially in the American collective conscious of the extreme wilderness, extreme beauty. I mean, the name itself, Alaska, is derived from the native Aleut word, which means the object towards which the action of the sea is directed. I mean, 
what does that mean if not that even the sea itself you know the mighty sea is somehow drawn its way and the the nickname of the state by the way is the last frontier and the state's motto is north to the future i mean Every bit of this is in line with this very extreme young man uh, and what he's looking for in himself, and, and he's looking for it in the natural world. Well, and, and of course, the first McCandless destination that Krakauer invites us to after he leaves, uh, you know, he so he gets this journal from, from Westerberg, and then he starts retracing the steps. And McCandless's first destination is Lake Mead National Recreation Area. That's a long way from Memphis, and we don't know a lot about it personally. So tell us about it. I mean, what is uh, – we've never been there. So Krakauer sets us up, and he talks up to, to us about this place. What, where is this place if we can visualize this first place that attracted McCandless? Well, you can't hardly find a bigger contrast to Memphis, one of the flattest <laughs> places in this country. We have no mountains or even hills around here. Well, first of all, it's big. It's a ha- one and a half million acres. It's the third largest of the national park services outside of Alaskan. You know, Lake Mead itself, uh, just for context, is about 30 miles east of Las Vegas. And if you've ever seen a picture of the Hoover Dam, I mean, that's the spot. And there are actually four uh, desert ecosystems in that part. And there's the Mojave Desert, which is uh, referenced in the book. It's 50,000 square miles in size. And, you know, it's the smallest and driest desert in North America. One of its most famous features are the Joshua trees because, you know, this is the only place where they're native in the world. So even before McCandless goes to Alaska, he's driven to an extreme location. I mean, when he gets there, you know, he drives off the road. It's 120 degrees. It's hot. He pitches a tent. And then, of course, his car will break down. And he proceeds to document himself burning all of his money taking a backpack and hiking around the lake, which according to his journal was a mistake. The weather there was so extreme that he's literally suffered a heat stroke. He got delirious, but he managed to flag someone down and they helped him get out. You know, and this is kind of the pattern that we will see in McCandless. He pushes himself until he finds his breaking point and then he reaches out for help at the last moment. True. And after getting a ticket for hitchhiking, he <laughs> meets a couple, and he eventually actually becomes close to them, Jan Burris and, and a gentleman named Bob, and they help him. In her words, he was looking pretty pitiful. Krakauer uses Burris's direct quote, and she describes their meeting. Unquote. He had a book about plants with him, and he was using it to pick berries, collecting them in a gallon milk jug with the top cut off. He looked pretty pitiful, so I yelled, Hey, you want to ride somewhere? I thought maybe we could give him a meal or something. We got to talking. He was a nice kid, said his name was Alex. He was big time hungry, 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 but real happy. Said he'd been surviving on edible plants he identified from the book. He was real proud of it. Said he was tramping around the country having a big old adventure. You know, the quote goes on, and and I don't have time to read all of it, but she will describe them taking them home with him, and he stays with them for a week. But at the end of it, this is what Jan says. He was a real good kid, and we thought the world of him. When he left, we never expected to hear from him again. But he made a point of staying in touch. And for the next two years, Alex sent us a postcard every month or two. Gary, what do you make of this? First, I'm struck with the fact that this kid is starving to death. But, 
is described as proud and happy, not anxious and desperate. Uh, he has a sense that he could always get out of this position if he wanted to, but he's deliberately challenging himself through the natural environment. And uh, whatever he has discovered about himself is really fulfilling to him. You know, uh, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus when he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And this is an expression of that. I mean, there is something really nourishing him and fulfilling some deep need. And secondly, for a guy that will be known for dying alone in the wilderness, he is committed to keeping all these human connections. But these connections, the one with the Westerbergs and uh, now this one with Jan Burris, it's on his terms. I mean, I know you're going to reference his childhood of abuse in a later episode, but since we uh, now know that was always a part of his story, it sheds a little bit of light on his desire to have relationships uh, while he's taking his baby steps, treading into humanity in a way that is really protected emotionally and He'll keep a correspondence with more than uh, Burris and Westerberg. Next, his big adventure will be the Colorado River. In his journal, he writes that he notices and impulsively buys a canoe and then decides to paddle down the Colorado River to the Gulf of California. That's nearly 400 miles. It's extreme. Again, he enters Mexico and he stays there until he gets lost. Let's read part of a journal. And remember, when he writes about himself, he writes about himself in the third person. He screams and beats the canoe with an oar. The oar breaks. Alex has one spare oar. He calms himself. If he loses the second oar, he is dead. Finally, through extreme effort and much cursing, he manages to beach the canoe on jetty and collapses exhausted on sand at sundown. This incident led Alexander to decide to abandon his canoe and return north. (laughs) Good idea, which he does, you know. He hits a couple of other spots, but eventually he gets back to Detrital, Washington, where he's abandoned his car. His car was gone, but he dug up his Virginia license plate and a few other personal items and headed into Las Vegas. Let's read that journal entry. He lived on the streets with bums, tramps, and winos for several weeks. Vegas would not be the end of the story. However, on May 10, Itchy Feet returned and Alex left his job in Vegas, retrieved his backpack, and hit the road again, though he found that if you are stupid enough to bury a camera underground, you won't be taking many pictures with it afterwards. Thus, the story has no picture book for the proof of May 10, 1991 through January 7, 1992, but this is not important. It is the experiences, the memories, the great triumphant joy of living to the fullest extent in which real meaning is found. God, it's great to be alive. Thank you. Thank you. Chapter 5 tells us right at the beginning that after McCandless ruined his camera, he also stopped keeping his journal. And not much is known about what he did after leaving Vegas in May of 91 until he left for Alaska. There are, of course, the letters that he wrote during that time to Burris and Westerberg. Apparently, he worked at a McDonald's in Bull City, Bullhead City, Arizona, for two months. Uh, he also went and visited Jan and Bob, and he worked at their book shack at a flea market in this strange place called the Slabs. Today, most people call it Slab City. I'd never heard of it, but Gary, Slab City is a pretty interesting spot. Tell us (laughs) about it. (laughs) It's in the desert, uh, and in the summer, it's almost always well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, this is the Sonoran Desert in California. And first, 
The location is an abandoned military camp that had been demolished after World War II. And it's a squatter community full of RVs. And they call it the slabs because all that's left from the military base are the concrete slabs. And in some quarters, um, it has a bad reputation with people claiming it's an, you know, an immoral free love community, but with nothing but heroin addicts and losers. Uh, but then there's the group of people who see it as an artsy community and it has shops and restaurants and um, even a church. And the most notable landmark may be Salvation Mountain, which is a monument made out of adobe mud and paint that a man by the name of Leonard Knight spent 28 years of his life making. And the message on the mountain is um, God is love. And there's another part piece that is interactive and uh with a 20 foot high seesaw called east jesus <laughs> you know but then there's the residential part full of garbage and people living in that some might call a junk pile so you know that gives you a little bit of an idea of what kind of unusual but wildly adventurous place this is i can see why mccandless might be drawn to it for sure but it, it wasn't really what mccandless wanted where he wanted to end up long term and so after an extended argument with Burris, uh, who was upset about his lack of physical preparation for Alaska, McCandless leaves them and he goes on to find the ultimate frontier. This is how Jan describes her thoughts on the day he left. This is what she said. I thought he'd be fine in the end. He was smart. He figured out how to paddle a canoe down to Mexico, how to hop freight trains, how to score a bed at inner city mission. He figured all that out on his own, and I felt sure he'd figure out Alaska, too. Which is, uh, of course, is obviously how McCandless felt about it. Uh, there will be just a few more stops on McCandless's journey to bus 142. He has pushed himself to the extreme time and time again. And, you know, he's found incredible joy and exhilaration along the way. Some have called him a narcissist. Others have called it foolishness. People say it's hubris. Some people say it's naivete. One of the things that's so fascinating about this story is the emotion that it still provokes. People have strong opinions about this kid and what he's doing. Uh, even though I know the end of the story, even as I read it here in chapter five, I find myself rooting for him. And I know that's because it's Krakauer's great writing <laughs> that makes <Yeah>. me hope. <laughs> well, it is. And in our next episode, we will let Krakauer introduce us to others who also took it upon themselves to push themselves to the extreme in this very physical way in The Last Frontier. And we will also discuss uh, some of the circumstances of McCandless's life that have surfaced since the book came out. Uh, that's helped the world perhaps not just understand McCandless, but also understand themselves a little more through McCandless. And that, of course, more than anything else, that is Krakauer's ultimate purpose in sharing the story of Alexander Supertramp. So until then, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget you can always find us at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Uh, on our website, we have listening guides for most of our issues, as well as other teaching resources and also... Uh, whether you're a teacher or a student or a fellow lover of literature, please subscribe to our podcast via YouTube or Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating, and if you like what you hear, possibly a review. It's when you share about the podcast to your friends on social media, text, or any other form in class that we grow. And thank you for supporting us in our mission to make reading great literature accessible and enjoyable to as many people as possible. Peace out.